All right. Our Easter text this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We're going to bring the scripture up here now and um, listen to God's word to you this morning. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's real? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a fantastic claim in the true sense of the word fantastic, right? I've seen the Lord. Do we actually think that happened? Do we actually believe that 2,000 years ago in this podunk little corner of the Roman Empire, that a carpenter's son, a carpenter's son from a small rural village who had no social standing, no wealth, no national merit finalist, no medals to say you're the best and brightest, no uh, recognition among the religious establishment, establishment, a person who came from the wrong side of the tracks, that we believe that was God, that God was walking around for about 30 years on this earth in that place, and that he claimed to be the Messiah and was followed by some people and did some miracles, and then the Romans came and they killed him. They nailed him to a tree after whipping him, and that he died one of the most excruciating deaths that human beings have, have ever managed to come up with. And he was buried in a tomb and a boulder was placed over it. And on the morning of the third day, he came back to life and walked out of the tomb and is the savior for all of creation. Do you actually think that's real? Good. Well, Easter... 
Easter is a time when we have to confront some of these facts. And not everyone in this room, my guess, hears that and thinks yes. For the majority of my life, I didn't believe it was true. I didn't believe it at all. I believed it was no different from Zeus being on top of Mount Olympus and throwing lightning bolts around to the spirit of the sun that comes up and makes us warm and happy. It was a human construct. It's a human construct that doesn't make a lot of sense, that is meant to help us engage our world, and it's meant to make us feel better when things are tough and bad. It's an audacious and a bold claim to say that we actually believe this is real. It's not like you're unfaithful if you have questions or doubts, right? I mean, the disciples, the apostles, the 11 who were left, it's not like they were all gathered around the tomb on that morning going, I wonder who's going to see the stone move first. Like, none of them were prepared for this. And the cool thing, when we sometimes feel like we have to check our intellect at the door when we start following this, is that this text from John actually encourages us to dive into our doubts. It encourages us to dive into our questions. It's unique among the Gospels that it talks about this idea of where is their faith and where is their belief and who believes and who doesn't understand. It asks us to go into those. It says that the most faithful believe, right? And what I also believe personally is that while the text encourages us to ask questions and to investigate, if we really look at the text this morning carefully, it also answers some of the questions that it encourages you to, to ask of, is this real and is it true? Let me give you an example, a few examples. If you were writing this story, if you and I were writing this, especially in the first century and trying to make something up, and I don't know why we would do this, but let's just say we wanted to make something up, a story like this for other people to believe, this account and the, all the gospel accounts are written in an incredibly bad manner and an incredibly unconvincing manner. Let me show you what I mean. First off, you have Jesus. Jesus, who is this leader who's had over three years to have this small group of 12 gather around him, and yet in his final moments, all 12 of them abandon him. He's not this galvanizing leader that has created something where all of his followers are going, we are with you to the end no matter what. They scatter at the first sign of danger, and actually one of the 12 thinks so little of Jesus that he has him betrayed and has him served up to be killed by the authorities. He's not this leader that you would portray if you're trying to, to make something up. Or take the apostles. The apostles are these people who have spread out after the Easter story and are saying to people, this is what I believe and this is what I've seen and, and you should follow these teachings as well. But the apostles look foolish in this, right? I mean, you think about how Mary Magdalene went back to say to the apostles, the body is missing and only two of them actually even go to see what's happening right? Simon Peter and the beloved disciple. There are nine others who are like, oh, I'm just going to sit here. Like, I, I just am going to sit here and not going to go see what's going on. I mean, the apostles just don't seem to have it figured out at all. And finally, you've got the unconvincing at the time testimony of the women. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that women's testimonies are unconvincing. If I did, I would have a long Easter lunch with the three women in my household that we're gonna go hang out with afterwards. However, in the first century at this time, 
women were seen as unreliable. In courts of law, they were not allowed to be witnesses. They were not seen as reliable witnesses. And all this is based upon Mary Magdalene, a woman, running back and saying, I've seen angels, I've seen the risen Lord, he is alive. If you were writing this, trying to convince a first century crowd that this stuff is made up and true, this is an incredibly poor way of going about doing it. Take also, for example, the fact that this text, while it encourages us to say where is doubt and where is their belief and where are questions and who believes when, this text is also written in a way that it gives tons and tons of unnecessary details in order to encourage you to investigate and see that it's real. Here's what I mean. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 19, where Jesus dies on a cross, it could just say to make the point of the crucifixion and resurrection, he was taken down, he was buried, and then the morning of the third day he rose again. All the necessary facts are there, but it's not written that way. It says that after Jesus has died, two individuals, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, go to Pontius Pilate and ask to have Jesus' body come down before the Sabbath begins and that they would arrange for it to be put into a tomb that's Joseph of Arimathea's. Now those details aren't necessary to the story, but they're important and they're significant because this story was written down only a few decades after the life of Jesus, after these events took place. There is a very, very good chance that Nicodemus was still alive, that Joseph of Arimathea was still alive. And if they weren't alive, their spouse probably was alive, their children may have been alive. My point is this, it was easy to go fact check this and say, it's not true, right? It was very, very easy to go back and say, hey, 30 years ago, was there a Pharisee named Nicodemus who became a Christian? And if people had said, we've never heard of him before, or no, that's not true, he stayed a Pharisee and helped us persecute the Christian movement, this whole thing is debunked, right? It's easy to go back and and sass Joseph of Arimathea, hey, by the way, did you happen to turn over your tomb to a guy that died on a cross? I mean, it's simple to fact check this stuff. Joseph of Arimathea was was a wealthy, wealthy businessman. And there are very few percentage, uh, we may not see it this way, But when it says that there's a tomb that Jesus could be buried in, most people didn't have that kind of burial. That was reserved for kind of the wealthiest top percent to have a tomb carved out of stone in a cave that a boulder could be rolled in front of. And so if Joseph of Arimathea gave it, he gave this extravagantly generous gift to a dead carpenter's son. And trust me, he would have known about it. And if he wasn't around to testify, you could ask his wife or you could have asked his kids who that tomb was taken away from. And they would have been like, oh yeah. We remember when that happened, when the criminal who died on a cross took away our family tomb that like was half of our family wealth and fortune was poured into that thing. Yeah, we remember that. John is writing this in a way that's not asking you to check your questions at the door. He's saying, I want to give you facts. I want to give you information so that you can go see this. There are things we teach our children in history book and school that have less reliability historically than the truth of the resurrection. And finally, and maybe most convincing to me, is the fact and the change that happens in the apostles after this event. These folks are changed from folks who don't get it, who are wandering around, that are missing everything, and are making all kinds of mistakes, to people who go out and start a movement that changes the world. Now, my guess is this week or or going forward, you're going to see things maybe on the news or on the History Channel or on CNN that are going to tell you that, that Jesus wasn't that unique at the time. 
that there were other people who were great teachers that had followers that, that um, claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, who would deliver the people. And you're right when you hear that. That's true. Jesus was not unique in that claim. But he's the only one we're still talking about today. Because most of those other messiahs were killed just like Jesus was by the Romans. And you know what happened to their followers? They went home. They do what you do when your leader is gone. You hope it's not going to come back on you. It's the logical, normal thing to do, but that's not what happens here. These remaining 11 and then others scatter immediately, not in a big group where there's kind of a group think and group mentality, but they spread off in different directions around the Roman Empire and around the, the known world. We know that the apostle Simon Peter, for instance, we read about here, went north into modern-day Syria and into Turkey and then over into Greece and into Europe. We know that the apostle Thomas, and I always feel a need to kind of stand up for Thomas because he gets this sort of like, well, doubting Thomas, reputation. It's like, he didn't just believe that a dead guy had come back to life. Can we cut him some slack? Okay, he probably wasn't the only one that demanded a little bit of proof of just going, oh, okay, he's alive, great. Glad to know it's now happened. Thomas went east. History tells us that he went east into modern-day China and into modern-day India. These people separated, and they went out all around the world with this claim that Jesus had come alive, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was still real. And there has never, ever been another time in human history where people went out and made a claim like that, and it got them nothing. They received no money for it. They didn't receive any wealth from it. They didn't receive any fame or any fortune from it. They went out on their own and had lonely lives where they left their family behind. They left their homeland behind. They left the culture that they understood behind. They spread out all over the world spreading this message. And we believe through history that as many as nine of the 11 were martyred for their faith. We know for a fact that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. A horrible, horrible way to die. We believe that the Apostle Thomas was run through with a spear in India for proclaiming this faith years later. Let me tell you something, folks. If you've made up this elaborate hoax and then you spread out and you're all on your own, when they get ready to nail you to a cross upside down and you're making the story up, you tell them. When they're getting ready to run you through with a spear, you tell them. But not one of them recanted their faith. Not one of them took back what they saw. Never before has this happened in history where a group of people spread out holding on to the same truth claim over time and over years and over great persecution. I want to submit to you today that while these facts are fantastic, they are reliable, they are trustworthy, and they are true that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. And when we say that, when we make that claim, everything changes. Everything changes. What we're saying is, is that with God now through faith, there are no more dead ends in life. There are no more places that are so broken or so hurting or so lost that there's not a new chapter that's going to begin because God is constantly bringing new life out of desperate and dark places and desperate and dark situations. What we're saying is, is that when we go through times of great struggle and great difficulty, that just as Mary Magdalene, when her life as she knew it had really come to an end thinking Jesus was dead, 
that we are encountered by divine beings that ask the same question to you and I that they ask of her, which is, why are you weeping? This isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story. It might feel like it. It might feel like at times that the story is coming to a tragic close, but it's not. Yes, you've walked difficult chapters. Yes, you have had difficult moments. But the story isn't over. A new chapter always begins. When we say that this is real, and we say that it's reliable, when we say that it's true, we proclaim something, and nothing is ever going to be the same. Whenever I think about the coming together of faith and belief and doubt, I'm always reminded of a story. It's a story of two seminary professors of mine. Two seminary professors who taught for uh, over four decades together on the same faculty at Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. Their names were Charlie Kowser and Shirley Guthrie. Now, these guys had taught together for years. Uh, Charlie was a New Testament professor. He taught people how to translate the Greek New Testament, the original language, into English. He uh, wrote numerous books and commentaries on the book of Galatians. He was a well-known author and speaker. He was a great academic. Now, Charlie, just so you can get a picture in your head, was kind of like a, the true, like, southern gentleman. He was like the southern gentleman scholar. He had, like, that old south accent, and he kind of moved at his own pace, and he kind of didn't get ruffled by much, and he just sort of kind of cruised through his day, and he was just this amazing guy. Shirley Guthrie, who taught with him, was sort of like his foil, was the opposite of that. Shirley was like this little whippet of energy that was just kind of constantly moving around, and he taught theology, the study of God. Uh, Shirley was somebody who was kind of known as a troublemaker and a rabble-rouser because he would constantly be pushing the church and pushing Christians to get out of their box, right? The thing he couldn't stand is when folks said, but, but I like it the way it is. This is what I like in church. This is what I like in worship. And he'd say, fantastic. That's not the point. The point's not whether you like it. The point's not how do we hold on to the models and make sure they stay the same. The models always have to follow the mission. And if the mission of God calls us to change everything and start over, then you and I need to be willing to do it. He was some Someone who pushed on people and was controversial, and he loved it. So you have this, this kind of southern genteel Charlie Cowser, and then you've got Shirley Guthrie teaching on the same faculty. And even though they were really different, they were two of the best of friends. They taught together for decades. They moved into the same neighborhood. Their families got to know each other. Their spouses became friends. They kind of raised their children together. The children went to the same school. I mean, these people did life together year after year after year after year. And when it came time to retirement, they even kind of retired at right about the same time. And just as that was happening, and just as retirement was kind of coming around the corner, Charlie Kowser was diagnosed with a form of Parkinson's. Parkinson's that he had was kind of a slow descent uh, as his body kind of broke down. And he required a lot of people to love and care for him. And Shirley, his friend for decades, was someone that was just part of that team that was there to love him and to pray for him and to walk with him and to care for him. Their families kind of walked that journey together. And as Charlie's descent sort of continued, one day Shirley got a call from a doctor as he had not been feeling well, that he was diagnosed with an illness as well. It was an advanced form of pancreatic cancer. And as many of you know, pancreatic cancer is one of those kinds of cancers that normally by the time they've caught it, it's too late to do anything about it. 
And that was the case with Shirley. That he found out that his cancer, there was nothing they could do. And so while Charlie had been on this sort of slow descent, Shirley, who had been doing great, got this diagnosis and his, ter- his health just completely deteriorated very, very quickly. It wasn't long after the diagnosis that he went into hospice care in his house. And then one day, Charlie and his wife received a phone call that Shirley had lost consciousness and that the hospice doctors were saying that he wasn't going to uh, awaken again and it was time for Charlie to come and say goodbye to his lifelong friend. So Charlie and his wife got in the car and went over to the house. They went in. They greeted the family who had all gathered. A hospice nurse left the room and Charlie went in to say goodbye said that he sat down next to the bed and Shirley was there, not not conscious. His eyes were closed and Charlie took his hand and told him he loved him, told him how much he had meant to Charlie and to his family. He told him that he had made a significant impact and then he led a time of prayer for Shirley. And at the end of the prayer, he said that he was kind of finishing up and all of a sudden, Shirley Guthrie laying in bed opened his eyes. He turned and looked at Charlie, who was sitting next to him, and said, Charlie, can I ask you something? Charlie said, well, what can you really say in that situation beyond, yeah, you're going to kind of ask me whatever you want right now. He said, all those years when we were teaching together, did you ever doubt if any of it was real? Charlie said, Excuse me, he said, did you ever doubt if any of it was real? Charlie said, well, yeah. Yeah, of course I did. Of course I do. And Shirley closed his eyes and said, Charlie, my friend, it's better than you could ever imagine. It's better than you could ever imagine. And those were the last words he spoke before he died. Friends, this is real. This is real. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't something that's been made up so that we can feel better. This is trustworthy and it is true and it is reliable and the promises of Easter are real and they are breathtaking and they are magnificent. They are promises that are true for Shirley Guthrie and Charlie Cowser, for Simon Peter and Mary Magdalene, but it's not just true for them. It's true for you as well. It's true for me as well. The promises of Easter are real. The promises of Easter is that life will always triumph over death, that hatred will never ever be able to overcome love, and that God will take the broken, hurting, disjointed places in our lives and will always begin a new chapter. You can rejoice this morning and hold your head high, for we have seen the risen Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us in our places that hurt and our places that mourn and our places that are sad and are broken. We ask that you would meet us in this world that is so intent on getting itself ahead and that your gospel message, your light of Easter would move into those places with might and with power and with majesty, that your light would shine in all of our lives today and that we would be infused with your hope. Lord, we trust in you and in your resurrection today. 
live in us and send us forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and continue to sing together.